Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. Today, funding secured. Twitter has a new largest shareholder than the head of Amazon's worker union after that historic labor victory. Later on, we're going to explain how the Nasdaq whale got beached. Dee. Carl, we got to start with Twitter, of course. Tesla's Elon Musk taking a 9.2% stake in the company, according to a filing. Shares are spiking some 25% at the moment. The new position comes shortly after Musk criticized Twitter for its free speech principles and even said he was considering starting his own social media platform. Musk's tweets, of course, have gotten him in trouble in the past after his now infamous 420 funding secured tweet. Musk was forced to abide by certain guardrails around his Twitter use. His response back then? Worth it. It's also worth remembering some relative size here. On the day of Twitter's IPO, it closed near $45 a share. Nine years later, even with today's huge pop, it is barely at $49. Market cap still below $40 billion. Guys, of course, a lot of questions this morning centering around what could or would Elon Musk do with this stake. I mean, there's not a lot that he could do, but there is still some skepticism on Wall Street that it would necessarily be passive um, as it was registered. Gordon Haskett points to the Silver Lake Musk connection, says don't sleep on the idea that Musk and Silver Lake might take Twitter private. Musk, of course, with that 9.2 percent. Silver Lake is below 1 percent in terms of its stake. Uh, But they note that Musk and Silver Lake were talking when he was considering bringing Tesla private. So I don't know what they could do, but it's an idea. And there's lots of them floating around this morning. Yeah. Well, in the spirit of uh, of Elon Musk, I'm going to say something controversial here. And, And Carl, so far for me, this story is in the category of interesting, but not important. And that's because Elon Musk is a genius, but all genius doesn't translate to all areas. I mean, Steve Jobs is a genius. He was bad at social networks. Mobile Me, iTunes Ping. We've seen no indication that Elon Musk is good at this particular area. And does he really want to run Twitter? Does he want to be hauled in front of Congress, you know, Jack Dorsey and, you know, Mark Zuckerberg style to, uh, to have to justify why it either published what it did or didn't publish what it didn't? I don't think so. So um, the, the market dynamics so far for Twitter don't change in any way that I can see or appreciate here. But if Carl Elon Musk articulates some new grand strategy for Twitter that, that changes the equation, then maybe it gets important. The question is what that's going to be. Uh, if he really is concerned, guys, about free speech, does he twi- try to wean them off of an ad-supported model? And then across the street today, it's just note after note about, well, what could the alternative be? 
Could it be subscriptions? Could it be uh, a nonprofit? Could it be some kind of vague business uh, business model uh, based on Web3? Um, they mm-hmm. don't know. But th- certainly the that voting would, structure, would, D, and fit. the way it's different from, say, Meta means that he can do a lot more here. Hold on. I got to ask John. Not good at Twitter? Come on. Elon Musk is maybe one of the best people at Twitter in the world. Don't well, you think I'm not he talking has... not good at using Twitter. <laughs> using Twitter and running Twitter and turning it into a growing profitable business, two different things. Not that it's not profitable, but growing profits at a significant rate, something that they have not managed to do versus Facebook and others. But uh, point taken, let's stay with the stock. Uh, As Dee mentioned earlier, up just about 26%. Joining us now, Goldman Sachs' Eric Sheridan, who has a sell on the company. Eric, good morning. Um, Is this important yet? Eric, does this change anything about Elon Musk's involvement, uh, Twitter's position in the ad market? Well, I don't think it changes anything with the business model today. Um, Our sell rating on Twitter is based on a couple of things. Number one, uh, what we've seen over the years in terms of their user growth and their user dynamic, we still uh, remain skeptical that they're going to hit their 2023 user target that they laid out at an analyst day last year. Uh, and also, you know, most of digital advertising is moving down the consumer funnel more towards direct response advertising at the bottom of the funnel. Twitter has struggled to capture direct response ad budgets, uh, mostly because they don't have anywhere near the level of intent or identity, and they're in the process of building their rebuilding their ad tech stack. Um, all of that still TBD uh, for a stock that neither grows as fast as a snap, nor is it as cheap as a meta or an alphabet. Therefore, we, we still remain sell rated. Right now, to my eye, Twitter is on Yahoo's trajectory from 15 years ago, right? Lots of people interested in buying it and seeing the potential. It might change hands a few times, but uh, not clear how it fundamentally overcomes the scale challenges that have accrued uh, as it's made some bad choices. How do you see it? Well, I still think they need to get some of these things right for the long term. If they do, we would change our view. But as of right now, uh, on the user front, they tend to see spikes around big events. So in a note we had last week, uh, we said that at the end of March, the war, as well as what happened uh, around the Oscars, you could see lifts around Twitter from a user and engagement standpoint with some of these big events play out. But historically, they have not translated into long duration uh, momentum on the user and the engagement side. It's a power user product for power users who love it, and including folks in the media and financial services and, and an industry like, like Mr. Musk. Uh, but at the end of the day, it does not translate into a it's sort of a mainstream product in the same means as others do. And on the direct response side, you know, we just finished our ad checks. We put them out into the public domain last week. We still have yet to see them have success with direct response advertising. And you compare that to Google search trends, which continue to be very good, or even Instagram, where Meta is a very out-of-favor stock, and we're very constructive there compared to the way the stock's traded. But you have to get some of those pieces right to create long-term business value, in in our view. Eric, it's Deirdre. Your points are well taken, but Musk often sees things that Wall Street does not. Uh, Analysts were so wrong on Tesla for so many years. And I wonder, would you allow that there's value here that he sees that perhaps you're not understanding with your set of tools. I mean, I know that you're skeptical that user growth can accelerate in the same way, but Twitter has been innovating uh, more in the last few years than it has before. We'll watch for that innovation. And if it comes out, I could change my view. 
I don't claim to know anything at all about the automotive sector. So uh, I, I, I leave it to Mr. Musk at Tesla on that front. Um, but when it comes to digital advertising businesses, it tends to either be user growth, time spent, innovation around the ad side. We'll watch for that. If it happens, uh, we could get more constructive, but we're not seeing signs of it just yet. The way you describe uh, Twitter, Eric, is exactly right. Uh, almost hyper niche for people who need high frequency information. It's, it feels like a subscription model. Have you done work on what that would look like and could they make that work? Yeah, over time, the subscription model is something that, that could be. Uh, you, you tend to take a subscription model, though, and 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 t- t- take mainstream off the equation. That would probably make it more of a power user product. Uh, It certainly could uh, be something that produces higher margins than the ad business, but we don't know if they'd be able to replicate the same scale of of revenue dollars. So Eric, what's most important for Twitter and its competitors right now? We've seen a lot of these stocks come down from their pandemic peaks. you know, what are the signals that you're looking for, whether it has to do with ad targeting or other things to determine whether uh, the prospects are shifting? Yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting nuance going on in the advertising space. You've got a tailwind in that a number of cyclical industries that have hurt by the pandemic, travel, local media, those are all still in recovery mode. You've had an enormous digitalization of the economy as a result of the pandemic that's creating another tailwind broadly for digital advertising. But as you pointed out, we're still absorbing some of the privacy headwinds that Apple created last year. Those won't become easier comps until the back part of this year. And the industry is facing what will be their toughest revenue comps in Q2. And then layered in on top of all of that are investor fears about a recession, uh, which we wrote in a note last week that we have yet to pick up signs of a recession in the broader advertising market just yet. But that doesn't mean it isn't out there and it might not change in a month. So most investors I talk to are in wait and see mode on digital advertising and hopeful that the back part of the year uh, could be more optimistic than the front part of the year. We typically try to be a little contrarian and say, look, we'd weigh in and buy shares like Meta and Snap right now because we think a lot of those fears are already in those stocks. All right, watching Twitter, but Eric Sheridan not buying it, literally. Eric, thank you. (laughs) Meantime, let's stay with Twitter and what Elon Musk might be doing here. The Verge editor-in-chief, Neely Patel, also host of the Decoder podcast, joins us, who wrote this morning, Elon about to learn that content moderation at scale is a harder problem than launching rockets and landing them again. That sort of says a lot, Neely. Yeah, I mean, uh, content moderation scale might be the most impossible challenge in the entire tech industry. Uh, If you're buying Twitter because you think you want to loosen the moderation rules, you're going to quickly discover that they're there for reasons and that having Twitter be a service that you want to grow and grow revenue on requires bringing on more users. And what those users want is a safe place to interact with each other, not to be overwhelmed by spam or overwhelmed by Nazis. These are problems Twitter has addressed for years If you think you can solve them by just turning the dial back, you're in for a rude awakening. Neely, we're talking about this like there's fundamentals involved. Fine. But one analyst calls this a Ryan Cohen move on steroids and that he lit a fire under GameStop as Elon Musk lighting a fire under Twitter. Do the fundamentals matter? Could this turn into kind of like a token where it has sort of this meme culture around it, retail investment interest that keeps us at these levels and doesn't really need anything else? 
Yeah, it, was it the Ryan Cohen move was that he thought GameStop was a good business that they could reinvent, and then the memers took over, and now GameStop is completely divorced from its fundamentals, right? Like, that's what I understand there. I think Twitter is a good business. It's not undergoing massive disruption like GameStop was undergoing. It's a fixture in media and politics, all these other places. It just needs to find ways to make more revenue and attract more users. It is by far the smallest social network by orders of magnitude in some cases. So I think it for to say that you're going to just meme stock it, you've still got to look at what Twitter is and what its business is and how it's going to grow its user base. And the solution to growing the user base is actually content moderation. It is not letting it be a free-for-all because that will turn more people away. And this is pretty well known in the content moderation industry, which I think most tech companies like to conveniently forget exists. <laughs> So what do you think this is then, Neil? I mean, it, it certainly has us talking about Elon Musk. He's the best at getting us talking about him without having a PR department. But in a sense, the Elon Musks of the world are Twitter's problem, right? Not necessarily uh, their solution. I don't know that Twitter th thinks of their most high-profile users as a problem. And I think that is actually a source of tension within uh, a lot of social media companies, the high-profile users behave badly. They get treated in special ways that other users don't get treated. People notice the hypocrisy that the social media companies get in trouble. This is a pretty well-known pattern. Elon is just playing into that pattern with more money than anyone else so he can buy 10% of Twitter. I do think what you're going to see is Elon is really committed to Bitcoin. He's really committed to decentralization. Twitter as a company under its new CEO is really committed to decentralization. Jack Dorsey is out there tweeting, I am the one who led to centralization of Web2. That was a mistake. I want to undo my mistake. You could see these three characters come together and actually try to build a more decentralized version of Twitter that potentially, and Twitter has an initiative called Blue Sky that would do this, potentially allows you to get your own Twitter client that allows you to choose your own content moderation standards, which would solve an enormous amount of problems. Now, can you get from here to there? That's pretty hard. But when you've got a shareholder who owns 10% of the company who is really committed to a vision like that, and a CEO who said he's really committed to a vision like that, you're on certainly better footing than just saying, okay, this guy wants us to turn down our moderation standards. Right. Yeah, people already making uh, the connection uh, between uh, Musk and Dorsey, and we'll see how simpatico they are. Uh, Neelay, great discussion to start the hour. Appreciate it. Neelay Patel. Thanks. The head of Amazon's labor union, Chris Smalls, he is on the other side of this break. Tech Check is just getting started. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. 
When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Amazon workers making history on Staten Island, voting to unionize in a first for an Amazon warehouse in the U.S. The vote is a defeat for the nation's second largest private employer, known for aggressively opposing unionization efforts. Joining us now, the man behind the movement, Amazon Labor Union President Chris Smalls. Uh, Chris, what a journey it has been for you. Let's go back to when you worked at the Staten Island warehouse. What did you see that made you and others realize that this was needed and a worthy objective. Yeah, well, my journey started two years ago when um, I let a walk out over COVID-19 after um, Amazon failed to protect us. It, you know, we had no PPE, no facial mask, uh, no cleaning supplies, no real guidance, uh, no social distancing. And I tried to go through the proper channels, but the company uh, neglected to, uh, you know, hear us out. And ultimately, they just wanted to... Uh, stop me from organizing by quarantine, uh, just me and nobody else. So I let that walk out, which terminated me two hours later. And um, from that moment, you know, I traveled the country, advocated for workers' rights. You know, I didn't give up, especially after uh, Jeff Bezos himself signed up on a, a campaign calling me not smart or articulate to make me the face of the unionizing efforts. Yeah, and for our audience that may not know, uh, you were described in a leaked memo, as you mentioned, as not smart or articulated. You were fired from Amazon. You were arrested once. How did that all play into sort of this growing momentum for the unionization drive? And were you guys surprised winning this vote, especially since in Alabama at another warehouse last year, it, that vote went overwhelmingly in Amazon's favor? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, for me, um, everybody know I always have this calm, cool, uh, collective type of attitude. So for me, I wasn't surprised because I know we'll be uh, sacrificed. I know we'll be dedicated to this campaign. I know what I sacrificed personally. Um, I know the work that we put in. And, you know, we know our coworkers. You know, we organize our coworkers. Uh, this is the reason why we decide to have this independent worker-led union. Because we know the ins and outs of the company uh, even better than the company knows them, their own workers. So um, I, I just felt the whole entire time, no doubt in my mind, that we were going to be victorious. Um, and we proved that on April 1st. Uh, Chris, uh, first of all, welcome once again. Um, th this started as a highly contentious relationship between you and Amazon to, to no small degree because people there belittled you, alienated you, thought they could win by making you the face of the union push, but you've won uh, this round. Yeah. You're, uh, so my question is on your strategy from here. Amazon's got a new CEO, right, since you started this. You are now a national figure in this new labor uh, movement. What's your approach from here? To what degree do you think you can cooperate more with Amazon leadership? Or to what degree do you think that's wise? Well, they don't have no choice. You know, the revolution is here. That's what we just witnessed on Friday. Um, we're going to organize uh, buildings all across the nation. You know, we in the last 72 hours, uh, we've been contacted from workers all over the world. Um, so 
they want to unionize. We're going to absolutely help them. We're going to get it done here in New York first. We have another election coming up in three weeks, so we're right back at the campaign, um, on the campaign trail. And once we're finished here in New York, we're going to spread just like the Starbucks movement is spreading across the nation. Hey, Chris, you clearly uh, understand a a big part of the Amazon uh, workforce. But for those who voted uh, against unionization, what were their reasons, do you think? And what do you have to say to change their minds? Well, you know, I don't think we have to say anything too much. You know, they were misinformed. Amazon spent millions of dollars putting them into captive audiences for the last few months, every 20 minutes, every single day. Um, so imagine being put into a classroom, being drilled uh, anti-union propaganda for months. Of course, of course, some people are going to fall victim to that. And I think that's a, that's what we saw. You know, a lot of people just really didn't know. They were uh, undecided. Um, the company's telling you to vote no. This is their main source of income. So, of course, they uh, they went with that. But mm-hmm. I think if we show them better, then we talk about it. We deliver a contract. We improve the quality of life. Um, I think they'll all come around and be on board. Chris, as you say, this fight is far from over, and we're already getting a glimpse of how Amazon is going to respond. They put out a statement accusing the NLRB of inappropriate and undue influence. So the other side of what you are arguing, what is next? Your vote, yes, established the union, but Amazon can refuse to negotiate. It could actually take years. Right. Well, you know, I can tell you now, um, Everybody knows what type of fighter I am, and I, I promise you, um, you know, we're not going to be in this fight for, for years. We want to make sure we deliver a contract um, as soon as possible. And, um, you know, the way we organize uh, from within, um, the way we organize the workers, the way we organize um, even the truck drivers, um, they're on board. And whatever it takes, uh, we're going to do that to get this contract delivered um, in rapid time. Right. Now, Chris, I want to go back to my question about strategy, because I think it really is uh, an important issue uh, for you in particular because of the of the level at which you have succeeded and been effective. There's going to be a lot of pressure for you to speak at other places, to try to stand up unions in other places uh, where Amazon and others are concerned. But then at the same time, you're talking about delivering a contract there in Staten Island. So to what degree are you going to personally engage with Amazon on that? And to what degree do you change into more of a diplomatic mode now as they need to talk to you? Well, you know, that's what we have lawyers for, you know, so we're going to add more to our Calvary. We're going to um, bring in more legal representation. Um, and, you know, I just really I just have to oversee it. Just make sure that this is what the workers want. You know, that's my job as the interim president. Um, whatever the workers want, you know, we make sure we put it in writing and we give it to the lawyers. The lawyers deliver what we want. And, and that's exactly how it should be. The workers should be the ones making the contract. And that's what we're doing right now. Currently, we already dropped off two letters to the general manager, letting them know our demands and letting them know how it's going to go from here on out. You know, they have to come to the table eventually. If they don't, you know, we will take further action. I'm, I'm, I have no doubt in my mind that we'll receive all the help and support that uh, that we need to uh, deliver a contract now that the world is paying attention. Yeah, you even had the uh, president uh, speaking out after the vote. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. We'll certainly be following your journey very closely. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Now, let's stay with Amazon and the impact on the company's bottom line. Our next guest calls Amazon one of his favorite stocks in e-commerce. Here to discuss, Stiefel analyst Scott DeVitt. Uh, Scott, welcome. So it, it seems like 
Amazon's costs probably not going down anytime soon, uh, given what's happening in Staten Island, which is one of their larger warehouses, and at least the increased possibility that the movement spreads. So what's Amazon's best move here uh, in terms of cooperating or not in, in this union push? And what's the impact on investors? Uh, thanks for having me this morning. Um, I think the um, you're seeing what Amazon's best effort is with the pushback that they're already doing and what happened in Alabama preceding this. Um, you know, many large companies go through um, these type of challenges of Walmart in, in history and never did end up with organized labor. Um, UPS has gone in the other direction. I mean, I think it's a cost of doing business one way or the other. What's interesting is, you know, Amazon today nationwide has a, a minimum wage that's $15. I think there was an Amazon spokesperson quoted over the weekend saying that in Staten Island, it's 17 to 23. They also have health benefits and, um, and tuition reimbursement. So, you know, where this ends and how long this takes, um, Really, nobody knows, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that you're going to have a fully unionized labor force at Amazon, um, you know, based on this information from last week. Okay, so um, based on that, you're thinking that Amazon doesn't have to dramatically change its approach to the labor force, it sounds like you're saying. And also, do you think that this uh, labor movement, which is happening beyond just uh, Amazon, is going to raise the cost of its competitors as well? I think there may be some concessions Amazon makes over time. I think that relative to peers uh, for similar jobs, that the compensation that's offered by Amazon is um, is quite comparable. So, um, you know, the, the beauty of a private company and its employees is you always have the option to work elsewhere as well. Hey, Scott, some of your um, your peers on the street taking a crack at uh, each 1% of frontline labor force that unionizes and what that would do uh, to annual operating expense. One estimate is about $150 million, uh, in annual OPEX. Does that make sense to you? It does. Um, Amazon has about 1.6 million employees globally. There are roughly 110 or so uh, fulfillment centers in the U.S. And so, you know, one fulfillment center, not knowing the, the labor base in each one, you know, would be 1% or less of, of those that are um, involved in actually shipping product for Amazon, which is a portion of the total labor base. Um, so that estimate, you know, ballpark seems reasonable. I think in 2021, in terms of total operating expenses to run the business, Amazon was north of $400 billion dollars. Scott, it's Deirdre. Uh, broaden this out to the wider e-commerce space. Where are you seeing opportunity, whether that be in shop, which is still well off its highs, um, or eBay, which has been an underperformer? So you had a, a big pull forward when we were all locked in our houses for a year or so uh, with e-commerce because there were no alternatives to shop predating the pandemic. E-commerce was gaining 100 to 150 basis points of market share per year. At the peak of the pandemic, e-commerce gained six to 700 basis points. By the end of 2020, that normalized to something like 350. And, um, and then there were no share gains in 2021. So when you look at it from an aggregate standpoint, it seems like uh, you had about a year's worth of business pulled forward and then um, back onto the, the market share gains that were being had before. Companies like Amazon, eBay, even Alphabet, which is tied to e-commerce, had a similar kind of pull forward. Where if you look at their P&L today, from a forecasted standpoint relative to where it was in 2019, it's about a year ahead. If you look at some of these 
smaller companies, some that have been you know, decimated in this recent correction, the pull forward's been more significant. So companies like Carvana and Etsy, Mercado Libre, C-Limited, Shopify, they've had two to three years of business pulled forward. Now, we're giving a little bit of that back now. It's very difficult to model when you're coming out of the pandemic. And I think that there'll still be a little bit of squishiness in coming quarters. But nonetheless, these companies have pulled forward meaningful period of time. And you know, I think ultimately will march ahead at similar market share gains uh, that they had predating the pandemic once we get back to normalization. Right. And the pull forward and the valuation reset, are, do the two match for the most part in aggregate in your universe? Um, they do. There, uh, there's not a commonality to the theme in the report. You know, we do go through it one by one. I would say overall that um, valuations are a, still a little bit higher than they were before the pandemic. But when you adjust for the, um, you know, the, the, the increase in the size of the company, argue the stocks are cheaper today than they were um, in February 2020. Scott, what about the possibility that the argument I'll make that either Amazon's costs go up significantly here or their velocity slows down, right? If they've got to abide by certain rules, make concessions to workers about, you know, breaks, about uh, length of time worked, any of those things, or if uh, the union's presence kind of slows down Amazon's ability to hire and onboard, are you factoring that in or is that not a concern? Well, I mean, Amazon's dealing with higher oil prices and COVID costs related to separating people in the fulfillment center. There's, there's a ton of costs that have gone into a business like Amazon due to the pandemic and because of the inflation you know, coming out. Um, this labor situation is, is one more. I mean, I, um, I don't mean to discount it too much, but it'll work itself out. If costs go up, they go up. I mean, consumers will end up paying more for the, the higher cost of the labor force. If they don't, then they don't. I mean, it's not like this is new in history. I mean, you can look at Walmart. I mean, this has happened um, many, many times, you know, in history and companies that have won and lost. Um, I gave two examples, Walmart and UPS. Stock performance has been just fine. All right. Yeah, Walmart managed to avoid uh, union efforts for a long time. Uh, Scott Devitt from Stiefel. Thank you. Thank you. Half past the hour, uh, stocks close to session highs here. Let's get a news update with Morgan Brennan. Hey, Morgan. Hi, Carl. Well, here's your news update at this hour. Starbucks shares sinking more than 5%. The company says it is pausing stock buybacks so it can invest more in employees and stores. The announcement coming as longtime former CEO Howard Schultz returns today to lead the company on an interim basis. Germany's finance minister says more sanctions are needed against Russia for war crimes in Ukraine. He is resisting an EU ban on natural gas imports from Russia. He says there are no short-term alternatives and Europe would inflict more damage on itself than on Russia. Energy stocks are pulling back today, even as crude oil jumps more than 3%, goes back above $100 a barrel. Exxon is among the names in the red, even though the company says first quarter production could top a seven-year high and operating profits could go above $9 billion. And J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon is out with the annual letter to shareholders. He says American consumers are generally in excellent financial shape. However, he also warns Americans should be ready for the possibility of an extended war in Ukraine and unforeseen consequences of that conflict. Back over to you, Carl. All right, Morgan, thanks. Uh, After the break, what did Elon send more of this quarter, tweets or cars? Tesla's delivery numbers are coming up next. Don't go anywhere. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. 
It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back. That Twitter stake isn't the only Elon Musk-related news today. Tesla delivered a record number of vehicles in Q1. Phil LeBeau has details. Phil? John, it was not a whole lot more than what we saw from Tesla in the fourth quarter, but it was a record quarter for deliveries, 310,000 vehicles, just over that. The consensus was for 317, though you did see some say the consensus was maybe 312, 313, whatever. It was just shy of consensus, 95% being models 3 and Y, as has been the case in recent quarters. But China, in this last quarter, it did impact production. And Elon Musk tweeted about that uh, on Saturday after the numbers were released. Elon Musk tweeting out, This was an exceptionally difficult quarter due to supply chain interruptions and China's zero COVID policy. Outstanding work by Tesla team and key suppliers saved the day. Remember, they lost four days of production at the Shanghai plant. And by the way, they did not restart production today. What's curious is whether or not analysts now will up their year-end projections for total deliveries. It currently stands at about 1.45 million vehicles easily about a 50% uh, increase compared to 936 uh, last year. Now, we won't get any guidance from Tesla, or will we get some guidance from Tesla when it reports its Q1 results? Sometimes they have, after Q1, said, look, this is what we are expecting for this year, though I suspect that they're going to stick with what they've told us in recent quarters, which is, look, an annual increase of about 50% is what you should be expecting from us, give or take. Some years it might be a little below 50, some years it might be a little above 50. So we will get those numbers, by the way, on the 20th, so a little over two weeks from now. But the big news this week will also be the Gigafactory in Mm -hmm. Texas beginning deliveries, Deirdre. Right. And Phil, um, the delivery number is pretty remarkable, especially when you put it beside the same numbers at other automakers. How is Tesla able to achieve such outperformance? Well, look, they've got a great handle on the supply chain, and particularly when it comes to chips. Now, we've seen a number of automakers. Look, Ford just came out today. Uh, They were down, what, about 23 24% for the quarter in terms of deliveries impacted by the chip shortage. And we've heard this from other automakers as well. Remember, the one reason why Tesla has been able to withstand this better than other automakers, it has been impacted, but it has withstood it, withstood it better than other automakers, is because they're writing the software to adapt to the chips that they have. So they've been able to do that much better than other automakers. They are impacted, but not to the same degree. Uh, pretty fascinating there at 11.30 now, uh, Phil. We're watching Tesla uh, for a whole host of reasons. Thank you, Phil LeBeau. Still to come this morning, uh, the Nasdaq whale gets beached. We're talking Masasan's next move after the break. Stay with us.
Want to bring you the latest on SoftBank. A source familiar tells me that its trading unit, the one behind the infamous Nasdaq whale trades in 2020, is liquidating after racking up between 6 and $7 billion in losses. The FT was the first to report this over the weekend. The wind down comes as rising rates, China's regulatory crackdown, the war in Ukraine has hit SoftBank's public and private holdings. Shares are down some 40 percent over the last 12 months, though. We have seen some green shoots in recent weeks with Alibaba rebounding some of that regulatory overhang in China, seeming to dissipate. Remember, though, SoftBank's trading unit, known as SB Northstar, that launched back in August of 2020. It took large positions in public companies as its venture arm, the Vision Fund, tried to recover from missteps and losses. Remember, WeWork. Now, the trading unit shocked the market, you might recall, with the size of its bets on U.S. tech stocks. It was eventually dubbed the Nasdaq whale because of the size of its derivatives bets. They were enough to move stocks day to day, reportedly helped squeeze the index higher. At the close of that year, it held $17 billion, but one year later, it collapsed to just over $1 billion. It was hit not just by turbulence in U.S. tech markets. Um, its remaining positions include the U.K. retailer, THG, which is down 85 percent since SoftBank acquired shares last May. And that one is considered to be one of London stock market's biggest recent fiascos. Meanwhile, guys, Ron Fisher stepping down as head of U.S. investment operations. He was with SoftBank for nearly three decades with Masasan through the dot-com boom and bust, the 0809 financial crisis, and the vision fund eras, the unicorns going in and out of that trough, John. Um, it's always a wild story. I mean, any side of this, but particularly that public trading unit, SB Northstar. One chapter closes for Masasan. Something tells me we're going to have many more. Yeah, yeah, it's a cautionary tale, I think, because before we talked about Kathy Wood as being the sort of poster child for the growth religion, Carl, it was Masasan. And, um, you know, there have been ups and downs. This is a big down. So for those folks who are kind of religious about meme stocks or crypto or ARK, right? Look at Massasan, you know, um, be careful out there. Yeah, uh, Kathy Wood herself with a series of tweets over the weekend talking about the slowdown, weak consumer confidence, the Fed playing with fire in her words, D. Um, although a rich valuation on ARM uh, might make up for some of that. Massasan has shown that you only need one. Remember Alibaba when everything else failed during the dot-com bust, John? Yeah, but uh, everybody else out there who doesn't have Massasan money uh, yes. for, for multiple right, lives in the game, be careful out there. So does the A in AMD stand for acquisition? Why that stock is getting a nice bump this morning. Next, Tech Check. Back in a moment. Let's get a gut check on AMD announcing plans for a $1.9 billion acquisition of Pensando, a distributed computing provider for cloud and enterprise platforms, says the purchase will help grow their data center business, adding a high-performance processor and software stack to their portfolio. News comes as Qualcomm completes its own acquisition this morning with driver assistance and autonomous vehicle software maker Arriver. Shares of both chip makers are higher today to start the day, John. Yeah, this makes me think of a couple of companies, one public, one private. First, the public one, that is Marvell, which sort of plays both in the data center arena. Uh, they're arguably, you know, in terms of the share of their revenue, one of the biggest uh, semiconductor players in that uh, space. Um, you know, so they're in both the autonomous driving space and in 
uh, and in data center. And then Renee James's Ampere Computing, a startup uh, that Oracle uh, has a big stake in. She's a former Intel president and built this company specifically, D, to address data center and cloud chips. The space is heating up. Meanwhile, after the break, the founder of Twitch breaks down a disrupted gaming space, Microsoft and Activision, big spend from Netflix, and of course, how crypto factors into it all. Tech Check is back in two. Big bets in the gaming space. We continue to follow the Microsoft Activision deal. Netflix is pushing into the space. In the meantime, more and more gaming companies are leaning into NFT offerings. But are gamers along for the ride? Joining us now, Justin Kahn, co-founder of NFT gaming marketplace Fractal. He is also a co-founder of Twitch, which Amazon bought for a billion dollars back in 2014. Justin, it's great to have you with us this morning. Your next act hey. is NFTs. And you think that introducing blockchain-based assets will be an even bigger change for gaming than st- the streaming was, which you pioneered. Walk our audience through what that looks like. Uh, thank you. Yes. So uh, we just launched Fractal, which is an NFT marketplace for gamers to discover, buy and sell gaming NFTs. And I think blockchain assets are a new business model for gaming, uh, which will be even bigger than uh, you know the free-to-play model. And so this is when games decide to put their assets, their virtual you know, skins and items inside of games on a blockchain and really give true ownership to players to trade them, buy them and sell them. Yeah. And I know that in your uh, your tweet, Twitter thread explaining all of this, you noted that Fortnite made nine billion dollars in revenue primarily from selling skins. So kind of an idea of what the TAM could be. At the same time, Justin, NFTs have had a really rough few months. Activity has sort of fallen off. There's been fraud. There's this whole idea of trade washing. Uh, There's also so many different platforms and different chains. You're betting on Solana. So what is your edge? Yeah, so we're really focused on gaming assets. You know, there's all sorts of NFTs. NFTs are, you know, just a way to prove ownership of something in the digital world. And um, people are using it for all sorts of different things. But we're really focused primarily on gaming, similar to Twitch, where we just said gaming streaming is all we're doing. Here, we're just focused on building a platform for people to buy and trade gaming NFTs only. Uh, Justin, you had a really great uh, essay, kind of Twitter essay, um, a little less than a year ago about going from huge success with Twitch to failure with Atrium and, and perhaps not considering the right things when it came to you know the other venture. So maybe some of that is instructive when we're thinking about NFTs, blockchain, the metaverse as it applies to gaming. Uh, what is actually in demand here and how fast should the industry go in pursuing it based on what you've seen work and not work? Absolutely. So, you know, I've had some big wins and also some really colossal losses in my career. And I think it's really important. What I've learned is when you're building a new product, it's all about focusing on that product usability and making it accessible to normal people, right? So that normal people can understand and use your product. And I think crypto has been a a very inaccessible uh, part of the technology space for a long time. And uh, what's really important with gaming is to create that usability so normal people can understand you know, what they're doing and what they're buying, especially with, with NFTs. And so uh, I think that's, that's our bet at Fractal is really focusing on that user experience. And um, I think that's going to be important if we're going to expand the market of gamers who understand and get on board with NFTs. 
Speaking of expanding the market, I'm curious to know, you make the point about live events and music and tickets. At the Super Bowl, we talked with the NFL. They're clearly interested in this space and helping to understand uh, who walks in the door in ways that were impossible when it was just paper tickets. Uh, sort of characterize the growth of that, in, uh, that vertical versus uh, gaming itself. Yeah, I think tickets is another really obvious and interesting uh, example, you know, because you can track with tickets, you can track, there's so much data when there's a digital record of everything and you see all the, the transactions and you can trace it all back to the initial sale. That's like kind of the data goldmine that uh, event organizers are going to want to have access to. And then uh, by making this a digital collectible that extends beyond the actual event, uh, you know, you can imagine that these are things that people might value um, beyond like as a souvenir um, or it could provide access to like other events or access to purchasing merch afterwards. Uh, so there's a lot of awesome expansion of the market, I think, in tickets once you put it on a blockchain and make it uh, an NFT. Uh, Justin, sort of a final broad question for you. Of course, you sold Twitch to Amazon. And this year, we have seen a ton of consolidation in the big players in gaming. I wonder, do you think that this is a good thing for the industry, for developers, for users, especially as many in the space talk about a decentralized future? Yeah, I think you're seeing like the maturity in the free-to-play business model, which started off like 15 years ago, you know, now is like a bit predominant business model gaming and then as an industry matures there's consolidation generally and i think what's really interesting to me about blockchain is that you're seeing a new economic engine for a new set of games uh, that's going to be a new wave and i think that's going to encourage a lot of startups um, to try this new business model because it's you know it's risky and uh, that will create a you know a, a new cambrian explosion of different types of games and gaming startups and that's kind of the future i'm looking forward to yeah, it's certainly interesting to watch. Uh, Justin Kahn, thank you so much for joining us. Hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. As we go to break, uh, we want to get a check on shares of Roku. Higher after announcing it's reached a multi-year extension agreement with Amazon. Stock's still down 40% for the year. Tech Chuck is back in just a moment. back with the Nasdaq uh, near session highs up better than one and a half percent doing better than the S&P up about a half a percent and the Dow that's just about flat Carl indeed John in the meantime one more thing and then another and another you think you're busy with Elon Musk buying that stake in Twitter we took a look back at a few of his recent tweets and endeavors including challenging Putin to hand-to-hand combat other items on the agenda, solving world hunger, putting people on Mars before 2030. If that all sounds boring, of course, he still has the boring company building tunnels in Vegas, delivering satellite Internet via his company Starlink. And he's got Neuralink, his company working on chip implants and brains and neurotechnology. Um, little wonder, D, some wonder if he's spreading himself too thin. Oh, by the way, uh, more than half list. a dozen kids. <laughs> Yes, thank you, Carl. That is that is one busy man. Uh, someone who I interviewed on a Tech Check live stream called him or called Tesla a call option on one of the greatest inventors alive right now. John, that's certainly one way to see it. I mean, we just listed off all of these huge ambitions. Yeah, but unlike a lot of us, fortunately for Elon, he doesn't have to meet his deadlines. I mean, the consequences of not meeting deadlines, not so huge uh, for Elon. But Carl, 
Uh, how about that Justin Kahn voice? I think he might have the lowest voice in gaming. I still, I still can't get over that. <laughs> we actually had some viewers write in and say that's what we used to call a radio voice. Yeah. Uh, talk about the pipes on Justin. Pretty interesting. Um, guys, uh, John mentioned uh, session highs here for stocks. Uh, could be a few more points on the S&P, and you're once again knocking on the door of 4,600, which has been a level we've circulated around uh, last few weeks. Uh, busy week ahead, though. FO- FOMC minutes uh, on Wednesday. Let's get to half and the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.